Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztraber, your host. On today's show, Airbnb, short-term rentals, and the right to share your home. As Airbnb and services like HomeAway grow in popularity, they're running up against a hodgepodge of local and state regulations. Joining me to discuss this is Andrew Moylan, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, Andrew, uh, you recently launched, uh, the R Street Institute recently launched RoomScore.org. Tell me a little bit about this website. So what RoomScore.org is, uh, is a website that displays uh, the latest policy research that we've done, in this case, on the area of short-term rentals. And what we tried to do is we looked at 59 cities across the country, uh, and we tried to grade them on their regulatory openness to short-term rental. And so you mentioned Airbnb, there are other services like HomeAway and FlipKey and VRBO, and they all share a basic structure of providing people a platform to be able to rent out a home that they own, a property, or a bedroom in their home. And we're trying to see how open these cities are to that, and that's what Room Score is. It's a pretty basic thing. You know, I either rent a home or I own a home and I want to rent it out to someone else for a short term. I mean, why is this even controversial? Well, it's controversial because uh, there are a lot of folks who would like to see uh, enormous restrictions uh, in place for these kinds of services. Primarily, we're talking about uh, the hotel industry, which sees uh, competition, and we're looking at state and local regulators who uh, you know, they, they get very offended when they see economic activity going on without, uh, you know, extensive involvement from them. And so I think that that's a, a trend that we're seeing. Right. So the, I guess the two basic issues are competition for the hotel industry and then just the fact that you're going around starting a business and doing things without first talking to me, the lawmaker in my local district. Right. You, uh, you may not have come and, and kissed the ring sufficiently. And so, uh, I mean, we're, we're making light of it a little bit, and, and certainly that's part of the impulse. And there's, uh, of course, at the same time, a genuine impulse to try to make sure that the public is protected and, uh, and that you know, safety and other issues are addressed. But obviously, we see regulations that go far, far beyond just those basic issues. All right. Well, let's start with the good news. What makes a city friendly to services like Airbnb, and what makes a city get a good grade from rooms? Score.org. Yeah, so we don't need to get into the the real sort of nitty gritty of the methodology here, but a quick description of it is we looked at a couple of different categories uh, to try to assess what what a city's openness to short term rental was. The first was, do they have a tailored legal framework for short term rental? And so a lot of them have these very old antiquated systems that either have no contemplation of short term rental, so you know something less than say thirty days uh, at all, or if they do, they're often geared towards sort of vacation rentals, uh, people who own an entire property in a beach community, say, and rent it out. But they don't really contemplate a, a single bedroom in a home or, or those kinds of innovations that we've seen recently. So we think it's a good idea for folks to have a tailored legal framework that recognizes that, that, that these services exist uh, and tries to create a structure for them. So that's one category. Another category is what kind of legal restrictions are there? Are there geographic limitations? Are their uh, time limitations? Do you have to be, you know, is there an occupancy requirement? Are you limited to a certain number of bedrooms? Those kinds of things. Um, we also looked at tax collection obligations. So not the tax cost to consumers, uh, which is usually very high, but uh, what kind of obligations uh, are placed on businesses to comply with taxes and, and how are those assessed? 
Uh, and then the last two things we looked at are licensing requirements. So how many licensing hoops do you require somebody to jump through before they can rent out a property and, and how expensive is that? We looked over a five-year time horizon to see what that barrier to entry was. And then the last one is enforcement, uh, which is, you know, are there excessive fines? Are there, uh, you know, excessive requirements? Some places have, you know, parking requirements and all kinds of other, other restrictions that make enforcement very burdensome. So that, those are the categories that we looked at. What makes a good score is uh, a city, you know, Savannah and Galveston are, are the top scoring cities. The reason they got the top scores is that they have short-term rental frameworks that, that recognize these services exist. And then they have very limited uh, restrictions otherwise. They make compliance pretty easy for people, you know, simple forms, uh, not huge burdens in that sense. And they don't get into all these additional restrictions, which are just, you know, kind of trying to regulate competition between uh, short-term rentals and others. So that's what kind of marks a good score. Right. So just to summarize, if you want a good score, you do, in, in your view, it involves recognizing the industry, not just kind of sticking your head in, your, in the sand and pretending it doesn't exist. But then after recognizing it, not having, <clears throat> excuse me, not having a lot of geographic restrictions, not taxing it too heavily and things like parking and making it unfriendly to parking. But um, one thing that I was curious about is if a city just chooses not to recognize it and not put in a regulatory framework, wouldn't that also be good for a company like Airbnb? Is it necessary for there to be a legal framework? If, if there's no framework at all, isn't that kind of even more permissionless innovation and more, less regulation? Why is it important for lawmakers to declare, I declare that there, I say that Airbnb yeah. exists? Like, why is that first step important? That's a really good question. And we actually have uh, a big chunk of cities that got A minus overall grades. Uh, and we called them the silent cities. They're actually silent on the issue of short-term rental. They don't have any laws that say this is illegal, you can't do it, but nor do they have any laws that say, okay, we're going to make compliance easy and here's the you know, forms you have to fill out and, and the way to do it. Uh, and the reason that we actually ended, they ended up having relatively good scores is that what we're trying to assess is what is the legal climate, what legal restrictions, you know, retribution might somebody face if they try to engage in short-term rental in a city. And in those cities, the answer is not much because it's not against the law. Now, they don't make it easy for you to comply, but it's not against the law to do it. Um, so to, to answer your basic question, though, do you need a short-term rental framework uh, in order to, to foster these services? Is. I, th I think the answer is no, you don't absolutely need one, but I think that it's advisable for a lot of reasons, that there are a lot of legal gray areas that folks have to worry about. And if you're engaging in short-term rental, it's a, you know, can be a high stakes activity. You're talking about uh, putting your home up. You're talking about, you know, uh, subjecting yourself to enforcement actions. Um, and to the extent that there's gray area, we think it's in the interests of cities and obviously in the interests of, of consumers and folks who might rent their properties out to have some basic rules that clarify how you can comply with them, uh, that, that make it easy and that don't get into, you know, as we said, kind of regulating uh, for, for competition and other things. So that that's why we think that it's that, that little extra bit from an A minus to an A or an A plus kind of range uh, would be a, a place that, that actually recognizes these services and, and draws tailored rules for them. 
So the uncertainty could come to bite a homeowner, like if if because the city doesn't recognize it and doesn't put up a framework and creates legal gray areas, then maybe you have liability issues. So in your view, it's better to have something in place that kind of sets the ground rules and everyone knows where they're at without having too much regulation that stifles the product, which would be sharing your home. Uh, so let's look at the opposite side of the coin. If a city has a lot of taxes or a lot of restrictions, Tell me your favorite example of a city that got a bad grade on room score and why they got a bad grade. Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of places that got uh, a bad grade. Uh, one I would point to is the city of New Orleans, um, which, you know, actually there is a sort of a very technically speaking, if you were to thread the needle just so, you might be able to engage in short-term rental in the city of New Orleans, uh, but it's essentially illegal. And you could think of a place like New Orleans is a big tourist hub. There are a lot of folks who want to come there and visit. Uh, and you could imagine a different kind of uh, a customer, a different kind of a market that could exist to serve people by, you know, staying in the French Quarter in a, a certain kind of, you know, apartment or, or condo or something it would be a different kind of experience than a hotel experience there. And so I think there's a significant opportunity for a city like New Orleans to, you know, to figure out a way to foster these kinds of services and, and benefit from them pretty substantially. Uh, unfortunately, they have these very old uh, rules in place. And, and one other thing that I would mention, and there's actually, unfortunately, several cities that uh, that qualify here, is cities that have tailored uh, frameworks for short-term rental, but they're actually quite bad tailored frameworks. They they enact enough restrictions and, and other kinds of obligations that uh, they end up getting bad scores overall. And so that's why, you know, while we think that it's a good idea to have a short-term rental framework, generally speaking, uh, of course, the devil's in the details and you want to have one that, that actually does a good job of fostering these services rather than making it harder. Proponents of Airbnb and space sharing, they'll point to the convenience of the platform. They'll say that it allows people to share an asset like a home better, and that while renting out your home is not a new concept, the fact that you have a platform that makes it easier is great. But of course, there are critics of Airbnb, and uh, specifically in New York City, my my hometown, um, you you see politicians calling it uh, calling these things illegal hotels, and and some of the concerns are that they drive up uh, rent because apartment buildings that are normally used for rent, uh, landlords will convert them into hotels. You have apartment buildings becoming hotels. Then you have the kind of NIMBY, not in my backyard arguments, which are like, oh, you've got foreign tourists coming into the city and partying like animals and keeping everyone up at night. And so what if you are a supporter of, of Airbnb, what would you say to those concerns? Are they unfounded? Are they are, is it is it outweighed by the benefits? You know, how would you respond to critics of a platform like Airbnb? Yeah, I think that the evidence suggests that those concerns are uh, you know we hear more about them than the evidence would suggest that we should. Uh, so thinking about housing availability and cost, for example, you hear a lot about this that uh, this has a net you know that that short term rental has a negative impact on affordable housing. This has been a major issue in places like San Francisco. Uh, 
and yet, if you look at the numbers, uh, the number of units that we're talking about that are engaged in the short-term rental market uh, is sufficiently small that it, it's going to have an, a very small impact on housing markets overall. Uh, and that's even assuming that people who are engaged in short-term rental are doing so on a consistent basis. The evidence suggests that most people do this somewhat casually. Uh, and yes, there are folks who, who own a property and rent it out virtually full-time, but most people are doing it you know, a few weekends, uh, uh, you know, a handful of times a year. So I don't think that that, uh, that the evidence suggests that that concern is as big as, as maybe some folks think. And you could turn that argument around and say that in a city like New York or San Francisco, where the rent is really high and you are renting an apartment and you are finding it difficult to make rent, that being able to rent out those weekends when you're not there or any time that you're not there, which is basically wasted. Uh, yeah. One of the reasons why people are so gung-ho about things like Uber and Airbnb is that you have a car sitting around not being used. You have a house sitting around not being used. And, and these platforms are allowing you to monetize that wasted time. So while on one hand, you could say it's driving up rents. On the other hand, you can say it's helping people make rent. It is. And and I mean, that's a cl- it's a classic case of uh, underutilized capital, as you put it, that people have additional bedrooms that, or properties that aren't always being used. People have you know cars that aren't always being used all the time. And there's an innumerable other examples in the sharing economy, people who own specialized tools. You know, if I, my brother, I was just in California visiting my brother. My brother owns a drill press. And I was very excited that my brother owns a drill press, but then thinking, boy, he probably doesn't get much use out of that. And it'd be nice if he could rent it out. And there are services that do that. There you go. Um, I'd also point out that you can turn the argument around uh, to some extent on hotels and the hotel industry because, you know, what are hotels if not gigantic apartment buildings uh, that are taking, you know, valuable uh, land space off of the long-term rental market in favor of short-term rentals, in this case, you know, all in one place and and sort of exclusively for commercial means. But uh, so you could make the same argument that hotels are, are taking valuable space off the market that could be used for affordable housing. Uh, But, you know, that's not an argument we hear much because it doesn't make much sense in that context. So let's get into that issue because, as you mentioned earlier, much of the opposition to platforms like Airbnb and HomeAway comes from hotels for the basic reason that it's competition that they haven't had to face until fairly recently because uh, while the sharing economy has existed, you know, people sharing things has existed before since before the internet it's now just been made so much easier by platforms like airbnb so are there lessons to learn about the way that hotels are regulated so obviously hotels they don't want the competition but a lot of times when we, the battles with uber and, and and taxis for example some of the lessons learned are that taxis are too heavily regulated is one of the takeaways from the saga with Airbnb and hotels that hotels are too heavily regulated and that rather than hotels trying to impose legacy regulations on Airbnb, we should all be working to relax regulations on hotels so they can more effectively compete with new platforms? Yes, to some extent. So let, let's sort of take this back to the, the beginning part of this question, which is to what extent is there competition between short-term rental and hotels? And that's actually a matter of some dispute itself, that uh, a lot of the evidence suggests that they serve somewhat different markets, that the kind of person who is uh, renting out a home or, or an apartment on Airbnb is not necessarily somebody who's going to stay in your average Marriott. Uh, and and most of the you know economic data suggests that the hotel industry is doing extremely well, despite the fact that Airbnb has you know risen to a $25 billion or whatever it is, valuation in a handful of years, 
the, the revenue revenue in the hotel industry is very high. Occupancy rates are high and growing. Uh, so that industry is doing very well. Now, I think when you look at uh, the regulatory picture, uh, yes, to some extent, there you can you can make the argument, and I would, and you'd probably agree with me that uh, hotels face you know large amounts of regulate. They have very high tax uh, rates that they have to pass along to their consumers that are far disproportionate to uh, ordinary sales tax rates. Their tourists are really targeted in that sense. Um, there's any number of other things from you know uh, the labor costs that they have and contracts that they need to negotiate, and uh, in lots of big cities that have you know large uh, labor union presence. Um, but I think that you know what we're talking about here is what is the interest of public policy? And the interest of public policy should not be to kind of figure out how to balance the scales between one industry or another. The, the, the interest of public policy should be how do we protect you know, public safety, public interest, whatever, however you define that. Some would define it more broadly than others. Uh, and in this case, I think that if you, have, if you can address those things, if you can address you know, tax collection, if you can address uh, safety or you know, other kinds of issues, um, you know, beyond that, there shouldn't be much role for for public policy and, and figuring out how the food fight between hotels and, and short-term rental goes. And then one of the other issues is that a lot of uh, hotel workers are unionized and there's always, and as are taxi workers, and there's always going to be that reaction to a new platform that is much more kind of laissez-faire and not unionized. Are, are, you see, are we seeing a, in, um, in the battles between hotels and Airbnb, is there, is there really a fight for public sector unions power? Is that one of the driving concerns, not just competition? Yeah, well, so in, in this case, we're talking about private sector unions. And yes, I think that you see that to some extent, not to as great an extent as you see in ride sharing. In ride sharing, you see, uh, you know, actual union, labor union uh, sort of activism. Just as an example, in Seattle, they're attempting to uh, sort of subvert federal law, actually, in order to unionize uh, Uber drivers. You know, so there are very active efforts there on the behalf of labor unions uh, to fight back against ride sharing. Uh, most of what we see in the kind of space sharing uh, realm in short-term rental is actually hotel industry folks. Uh, it's, you know, the hotel and lodging associations and states and localities. It's, you know, the Chamber of Commerce. It's those kinds of folks oh, okay. that are engaging in it. So it's um, not really the employees, the guy who, you know, helps you with your bag. It's more the executives that work at the hotels. Right. And and it's not to say that the labor union issues aren't important. Uh, they are. That's part of the reason why hotels have have very large legacy costs that they need to deal with. Um, but the one thing that I, I was going to point out that I think is important is that we're also talking about two very different kinds of things. A hotel is a purely commercial venture. Uh, you're building something for the purpose of engaging in business as much as you can. You would like for that those rooms to be filled every night uh, that you know, you're accepting money and somebody's staying in a room. Uh, so it's in, it's intended to be entirely commercial. What we're talking about with short-term rental is not a purely commercial venture. It's somewhere between pure commercial venture and and you know private use. Uh, it's somebody who wants to engage occasionally in uh, a commercial use for a property. And so we need to think of it in a slightly different manner because it's not a purely commercial venture. It's not engaged in business all the time. Uh, and we would never we would never dream of of imposing some of the requirements that we have for business businesses on individuals in their homes. Right. You know, we don't, I, my, I'm not required to have a fire suppression system in every room in my home, and that's not something that uh, states would ever do. Uh, so they're, they, they're different markets, they're different uh, types of ventures, and as such, we have different uh, regulatory climates for them.
Right. There's always the issue of trying to impose regulations that were designed for a very different thing, like a hotel, on something that kind of looks similar but is not really similar. Now, in addition to grading um, 59 of the largest U.S. cities on how friendly they are to home sharing, there was another interesting takeaway from the report. Uh, You characterized the home sharing policy environment as, quote, immature. What do you mean by that? So what we mean by that, and, and I'll harken back to some of our work on, on ride sharing that we've done. Uh, this scorecard, you know, roomscore.org, what we're talking about here is actually modeled on a previous version that we did for uh, ride sharing uh, in, in part, at least for vehicle, you know, for higher vehicle transportation. Uh, and that project is called Ride Score. So folks could check that out too to, to see kind of where, where this came about. Um, and when we first did Ride Score was actually in 2014. And we had what we found was sort of a very immature policy environment there where you had a small handful of cities, I think it was 19 out of the 50 that we looked at for that study, that had any kind of tailored framework that had dealt with ride sharing. Now you fast forward to the end of last year, December of 2015. uh, And now we have, I think it's some 39 states, if uh, my memory serves me, that have uh, some form of legislation for ride sharing. And I think within a few years, we'll probably basically be at 50. Right. Um, so that 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 market has that that kind of policy market, so to speak, has matured very quickly. Now, looking at short-term rental, uh, again, we see only a handful of cities that have uh, drafted tailored frameworks for this that have some kind of regulatory structure for them, um, and you know, so it's it's kind of on the early stages of that, and I I expect I hope that it will. Uh, transition much the same way that ride-sharing debate did, where there was kind of a, a, a unifying around a consensus uh, position, so to speak, that that helped to carry that issue uh, to you know passage in, in law in a lot of other places, and we're we're seeing some of the early signs of that perhaps in short-term rental. Well, listeners, find out where your city ranks at roomscore.org. Uh, you can see if you've got an A or an F or somewhere in between. Uh, and uh, find more of uh, R Street's work on R Street uh, on ride sharing and home sharing at rstreet.org. My guest has been Andrew Moylan, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure. Follow us on Twitter at Tech Freedom or on Facebook.com slash Tech Freedom. Find this podcast in the iTunes store on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It will really help us and help others find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.